Hey, John. Glass of water. So, uh, Revelation chapter 14 is uh, where we're going to begin. We were partway through uh, last week. We'll review a little bit of that and then take a look. Evan, do you know how to recenter the shot on that tablet for this camera? So, you can literally just place your finger on it and slide it to where I'm not completely out of center. Okay? Just as long as I'm centered and, you know, not cut off halfway through my face or something weird. <coughs> um, so, we, uh, this morning had an interesting experience where right as we were finishing the morning service, I began to pray and Oliver was sitting at the sound desk and water started landing on his shoulder. He looked up as we're praying, looks around, and you can see the split in the ceiling right above the sound desk against the wall. A zoned valve had let go. And the whole ceiling right there was full of water and began to run down so quickly. We dismantled everything in the entire soundboard station and pulled it out of there and then literally drilled a hole and drained the water and began the whole investigation. So had to come in late this afternoon after we'd gotten that mostly dried up and hook everything back up. Uh, you know, just moments before we started. So we started a little late, and um, that's the phone hub and the internet hub and everything. So that takes all the printers offline. And so the chaos is just, you know, a giant domino effect. Um, but, you know, the, the, the way I'm looking at it right now is that could have let go during service and come right down through all of that, uh, and we would have, you know, suffered all of that. So the grace of God um, preserved us, and in typical Calvary Down East fashion, we scrambled, and um, we're, what's that? That's right. Right on time, exactly. So um, here we are, and we're going to pick up, in uh, Revelation chapter 14. So let's pray and we'll do a little review and then move forward. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, its great work in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this evening, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to be led by you. We need the power of your spirit to live for you. Uh, fill our hearts with joy, fill our hearts with hope and anticipation as we look at the revealing of your plan this evening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, the uh, one more thing I've got to do before we... I, I'm working off my phone here, and uh, the... Uh, is it, is it, is it, there, that's the one. And that probably won't work either. 
it's it's difficult when I'm talking to myself and you're trying to understand. I apologize. So, um, so uh, we had seen uh, Revelation chapter 14, beginning at verse one, uh, the Lamb and the 144,000, and we talked about you know uh, the the Lord uh, holding the nations in derision. We'd seen in the previous chapter how they're all you know the the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they're mounting this great offensive and and the lord really is prepared for that obviously and we referenced psalm 2 and how the, the lord will you know hold them in derision and accomplish his will um the uh proclamation of the three angels uh took place uh beginning at verse 6 and extended down through until uh, verse 14 and then we uh, came to this place where we started to talk about the reaping of the earth's harvest. So um, I'm going to back up uh, here just to verse 12, and uh, we'll move forward where uh, Revelation 14, verse 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of of Jesus, and we're going to talk about that a little bit in chapter 15 of the issue of just raw endurance, the, the way that believers, you know, not so much in in their own strength, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, in the strength of the Lord, endure, and the Lord, you know, makes that out as, you know, the mark of the believer, the ones who, you know, really hold on. In, in dire circumstances, they they endure through the difficulties and, you know, uh, overcome in the process is how the scripture describes it. That they they overcome through the endurance. It is it isn't even so much that they they conquer, as it is uh, that their their conquest is a conquest of faith through endurance, the strength of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. So here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You know, because really the power the greatest power of our enemy is is death, right? There's temptation, there's all these other things that come along the way, accusations. Our enemy has an assortment of tools that he uses, weapons, traps that he uses against us, but his, his ultimate weapon is death. And, you know, that old adage of, you know, the worst thing that he could do to us is the best thing that he could do to us. Take our lives. You know, if we've endured in the faith, if we've remained, if we have abode in Christ, then, uh, you know, we enter his presence. And so this statement, you know, this is the patience of the saints. Verse 13, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. It's, it's, what a remarkable thing. Yeah, you know, you, you begin at, at the beginning of this book, you know, first couple of chapters, quite a bit to say from the Spirit. You know, this is what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Then there's a silence. All the way up to chapter, you know, the, the end of, of the book. And right here in the middle... The Holy Spirit sort of steps in and says, you know, by the way, <laughs> just just wanted to remind you, you know, hear what the Spirit says, 
you know, that blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. It's it's an interesting thing in that, you know, death creates such fear in us. And then here comes the reassurance of the Holy Spirit that, hey, you know, don't don't get overwhelmed. Uh, The Lord is still with you, even if they're going to take your life away from you. You know, you're, you're going to enter into your rest. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. The idea of, uh, um, you know, they, they're, they're attached to them. They come with them. It's not, you know, like other occasions in life where, you know, in, in fact, in direct contrast, the, the ungodly, work so hard, strain so hard, labor so hard for the things of the world, and then upon death, they lose everything. You know, so the contrast is that you can take it with you if you've paid it ahead, if, if, if you have in, invested in the kingdom and, uh, you know, put your heart and your life and your time into your relationship with the Lord and the expanse of his kingdom and the work of our Heavenly Father, then you can take it with you. You know, you've, you've paid it into your retirement account. You know, so, so this idea that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. You know, we often say, you know, I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul. You know, you, you don't get to, you know, move and take it with you. But, you know, here there is the transference of account in having it in the kingdom and uh, laying it up where moth and rust do not corrupt. And thieves do not break in. Second um, Corinthians chapter four verse sixteen says, "Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day." So even as we get older, even as the aches and pains, even as life's struggles increase, even as you see the news and it's just more and more disparaging every day. It's just one day closer to the fulfillment. It's one day closer to the promises. It's one day closer uh, to seeing God's plan fulfilled in our lives. So now in verse 14 of chapter 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Twenty-five times in the book of Matthew, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's interesting because throughout the scripture, uh, it it is all these hinted references to the Son of Man and his glory and his majesty and his judgment and his kingdom and his, you know, conquering. And you hear all of these things. And in, you know, the passages of the prophets, you don't get much of any definition, just the term, you know, the Son of Man the Son of Man. And we don't see anyone throughout history who that was assigned to or they took it upon themselves. Jesus arrives and you hear it continuously. This is the Son of Man that Daniel spoke of. This is the Son of Man. This is the Son of Man. Jesus even refers to himself as the Son of Man. You know, the the indication is he's God in the flesh who's allowed himself to become the son of men in order that he could conquer death. There's a great glory in the humble statement. 
So having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And we'll begin to examine that sickle in just a moment. But this concept of the glory and through chapter 14 and as we talked about, chapter 15 is quite short, eight verses. Um, you begin to see uh, the strongest representations thus far of the glory of Jesus Christ and uh, his conquests and um, his setting up his kingdom. So now, you, you know, for the first time, this idea of, you know, his coming in the clouds, think of Thessalonians and how the Lord will descend into the clouds, not to the earth yet, but into the air, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds, uh, you know, to be with the Lord uh, forever, you know, comfort one another in these words, as the scripture tells us. The Son of Man is here seen, you know, in the clouds, on the cloud, you know, with this authority of the Son of Man. That's very significant in all of world religions, that God would become a man. All of the other world religions are an effort. Uh, you know, we were talking about the New Age uh, last week, uh, Shirley MacLaine and that whole like uh, of the attempts of man to create a belief system where in their imaginations they're becoming God. They're, they're reaching to God, you know, go back to Nimrod elevating humanity to you know become god or at least god like you know god says i'll become man like you know humble myself even to the point of death to prove to 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 conquer death by rising again and prove to you i have power available for you to conquer death which is you know, I, I don't even know how to describe that. You think of, you know, entering a battlefield and, you know, one by one you're being introduced to the weapons of your enemy through combat. You know, however you want to look at that. They, you know, start with, you know, bows and arrows and slingshots and knives and work their way up through, uh, you know, uh, guns and, you know, machine guns, and, you know, artillery and bombs and nuclear bombs. And, you know, you, you get to the place where you're just overwhelmed with the power of, of your enemy, and then here comes one in this very humble state who experiences the worst and then stands up afterwards and turns around to say to all that are on the battlefield, I have the power to do the same in your lives. Whatever Satan can throw at you, you know, I just handled, you know, the, the full gamut of, of his delivery. So, so, you know, can you trust me to follow me? Can we, can we go forward into this battle and experience whatever it is, and I'll deliver to you uh, victory. Son of man, uh, here, the crown of glory, golden crown on his uh, you know, head, in his hand, a sharp sickle. Now, the sickle used here uh, is mentioned more than anywhere else in the Bible. Sickle is mentioned, uh, I think it's some 14 times. Uh, throughout the scripture, uh, you look at all the different occasions that harvest is spoken of. And here, in this single passage, uh, the sickle is mentioned more times than all of those other times combined. 
And what's interesting, uh, while the sickle is, you know, almost exclusively uh, uh, referenced as, as harvest and symbolizing harvest, it is not used in vine dressing. Uh, uh, you know, vineyards do not use the sickle. You know, you harvest wheat, harvest grain, uh, uh, you know, hone the field, but not the vine. Um, here, there's a, a bunch of picture within this uh, of imagine that the vine ha has just overtaken everything. And th then we'll also talk about the the state of decay that's involved in the vine and the way the Lord is just like done with it. Like now it's time to just clear this all out of here. You know, they, they had shearing mechanisms, you know, like scissors, shearing harvest. You go in and, and, you know, grab the cluster and clip off and place in the basket and clip off and clip off. He didn't go in there with, you know, the, the, the sigh and start, or even the hand sickle and start hacking away on the, uh, you know, the vine. Uh, we moved into a place in Lemoyne. And uh, the, the owners had had it for like four generations. And uh, they're all excited to tell us, oh, it's just raspberry bushes right behind the, uh, you know, the barn. Remember Lemoyne Beach when we lived there? And uh, we were all excited. Yeah, no raspberries. You know what I'm saying? It's just it, like, you know, there'd be like 17 raspberries on these giant bushes. So, you, you, you know, you endure this monstrous thing. Which we asked them later. It had, there was a time it had been fruitful. But, you know, we let it go for like three years. And then we were just finally like, you know, lawnmower. And just, <laughs> we owned it right to the ground. You know, the dog's in it and the kids are tangled up. And you go out the back door and it tears your arm open. And you're, you know, mowing the lawn and go by. And just, what it's doing is just wreaking havoc. And not giving you raspberries, you know what I'm saying? There, there comes a point where you're not out there, like you know, with this delicate fruit, and and you get the motorized sickle out and you finish the thing off. Uh, so here we're going to see a similar thing, uh, where the sickle is put to use in a setting not normally put to use. The angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, this uh, sense of the, um, the harvest being ripe is the idea of it being overripe. Um, you know, gra grapes don't turn into raisins on the vine. They have to be picked off from the vine, and then they have to be laid out to dry. If you leave them on the vine, they will spoil and they will rot. It is, it's, it's a useless thing to let it go too far. So, you know, we get this glimpse behind the scene where the Lord is is talking about humanity and the judgment that is to come and the idea he's he's going to liken this 
to the wine press in his wrath and the way that he carries judgment out against the earth. That, that he's, he's let it go. And, and even in this over-ripening, this withering that he's allowed to happen, uh, the Lord is careful to show us that it's his grace. That the reason he's let it go so far is because he didn't, this, this is his wrath. He didn't want to bring the wrath, you know, where everybody else is saying you should have dealt with it earlier. You know, if only you had, you know, intervened. If only you had put a stop to it. I mean, look, look around. Does your heart not, I mean, there's the frustration we see in the news of the nonsense that's going on. But then aren't those heart-breaking stories, you know, just last week, how could a mother be so violent? You know, and and to commit such atrocities against their own children, it's just you you left going. It's almost like you could accuse God. I mean, it would be blasphemous. But but like, Lord, how could you let it go so long? How could it get this bad? And you have to hear, you know, what Peter is saying. Uh, is that Second Peter three nine? You know, God is, you know. Not slack concerning his judgment, but he's patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. You know, he he this this rottenness on the vine, this shriveling that's described here, is because God wants humanity to repent. He wants people to come to know Him. So here we get this glimpse behind the scene of the harvest, and we get we get a glimpse behind the scene a couple times in the Scripture where where we get like real clear vision of what's going on, right? We're going to see massive death on the earth here in Revelation uh, as this harvest is taking place. And we're going to see this cataclysmic war between God and humanity as we turn the pages, right? Uh, within this, that the angel you know, and the, the, the Lord on the, the cloud and the, the sickle being thrust in, uh, that's the heavenly, the actual occurrence. The cataclysmic war here on earth, that's the shadow. We don't think of it that way. This, this is our reality. So we look at it like that's the thing that's, I guess it would be weird to say, really happening, when in fact there is a heavenly realm where the things are really happening and the results are felt here in a different way on earth. couple ways of looking at this, if you uh, make note of 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, there as the prophet Elisha is dealing with wicked kings, and, and you know now he's surrounded, and his servant is all in a panic about, oh, you know, the, the enemy's at the door. You know, he, he tells him there's more with us than there are with them. And all he can see is the invading army, and, and Elisha prays and asks the Lord to open his servant's eyes. And when he looks, he can see the heavenly host, this chariots of fire surrounding the enemies, which are surrounding Elisha as a servant of God. You know, when you can see behind the scene and see what's really going on, the you know, you might. You know, see the events of the earth and think it's gone too far. It's terrible. This is horrible. 
behind the scene, God is saying, I need to let things wither. I, I, I want to be patient. I want salvation for anyone who would accept it. You know, I, I often, in this setting of letting things go too far, think of the death of Lazarus, where he gets news. Lazarus is dead or, or sick. And, and it's weird because it says, you know, you're, the one whom you love, Lazarus, is sick. And the scripture says, and so he waited. <laughs> you would think like he would rush. And instead he waits. And we've recently studied that, how there is that um, a false belief of the Jews that when someone dies, their spirit lingers over the body for three days. And and. and it, you know, if given the opportunity, the spirit of that person will re-enter the body, and they can come back to life. So when people, you know, m not that it happened regularly, but if people died and then came back to life, their mindset was, oh well, you know, the spirit lingered. So they had actually developed that false belief system to the point where they said that that was possible for three days, but after that, it was impossible. At the three-day mark. They had this weird, weird way of wording it, but it was, it was like the spirit which had departed would come to its senses and go to its eternal place. And uh, so Jesus waits four days. And, and thereby, he erases their false belief system and shows the power of God by calling Lazarus back from the dead. We look at it like Mary and Martha and say, it's gone too far. You know, by now he stinketh, you know, and, and then the Lord resurrects them. You know, I, I've sat with many parents and many spouses who their loved one is walking away from the Lord. And they're saying outright, it's gone too far. And I'm saying, well, maybe it needs to go a little further. I mean, I wish it wouldn't. I pray they would repent right now. But maybe total spiritual death has to set in. So that Jesus Christ can raise this person back to spiritual life and draw them to himself. We, we view things incorrectly sometimes. Uh, you know, in First Chronicles 21, verses 14 through 16, is that occasion where David disobeyed the Lord very flagrantly and took the census of the people out of pride, out of arrogance. He takes a census to, to basically say... How awesome is my army? How great are the things that I have built? How wonderful is the nation that I'm the Lord of? All things the Lord had forbidden. And uh, the Lord allows a plague to come upon him. He repents and asks the Lord to relent. But in the midst of that, uh, we see there in First uh, Chronicles 21 that the Lord allows him to see the angel that was swinging a sword over the nation. You know, so so here, this one thrusting in the sickle—that's what's truly going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. Uh, I think we're going to be really astonished to uh, see the spiritual reality. You know, the things we thought were so real, so tangible. Here, we're going to discover that they are just the, you know, the repercussions of what was going on in the spiritual realm. This, you know, the way Paul talks about how this is the temporal. This is the temporary. This is the thing which is perishing. You know, has more to do with our imagination. I like to study some of those things 
you know, read those that work in physics who, who talk about the fact that, you know, all of these materials that we think of as so, you know, tangible, as we say, so sure, so hard, when in fact, you know, all that I'm experiencing right here is simply electronic interference. You know, there, there's more space between the molecules here than there is actual matter. If there was not a very solid electrical field, I would be able to pass, you know, straight through this. You know, th this has more to do uh, with an imagination and and a uh, you know the existence of an unseen realm than than it is the actual reality that we think of all the time. I'm anxious to be in the presence of the Lord and see, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. So 17. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, who he also having a sharp sickle. So now we see this thing unfold. Another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. He cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And now this is actually the idea of rotten. So we got the idea before of like overripe or withered. And now this statement is made like, okay, like the harvest is worthless is sort of the attitude. Um, you know, any anything that would be uh, useful out of the grapes now is going to be cull. It's not even, I mean, you might be able to make grape juice or even wine. Like they might have even fermented to a certain degree on the vine you aren't going to grab any of these clusters and sit down in the shade and just start popping them in your mouth. It, it, they're going to be vile, is uh, the attitude that's here. This angel and the power over fire uh, seems to be because he came out from the altar. It, it seems to be that um, th this is describing the fire that would um, uh, consume the sacrifice. So he comes out from the altar. Uh, there, there are those that argue and say it's the altar of incense, which, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to divide hairs over this. The point is what Moses built in the tabernacle, we are told repeatedly uh, this was a model of what was going on in heaven. This angel that comes out and it says he has power over fire seems to be the fire from the temple that is in, you know, the Lord's temple, his holy temple, in his throne room. So be it the fire of the altar, right, because the fire of the altar was supposed to be the fire that ignited uh, what the incense was burned with. Remember how Nadab and Abihu saw, Aaron's son saw the, the Shekinah glory of the Lord fall, and they grabbed coals off from their own campfire, put it in their incense burners to burn incense, rushed into the temple, were struck dead. Why? Because the fire did not come from the presence of the Lord. This angel is the one who has the, the authority, that he's the keeper of the fire that, that would be in the presence of the Lord, the altar or the incense. So it's kind of an interesting, again, behind-the-scene view here. This 
fully right, this rotten uh, sense of what the Lord is saying. Uh, there's a, a passage in Matthew uh, chapter 9, begins at verse 35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of uh, the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said, to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. My point in including that, the harvest is not rotten, brothers and sisters. We, we are still in the time. We are still in the place where souls can be won. People can be brought into the kingdom. Um, I, I'll encourage you one more time. We have uh, the Gospels of John out front on the desk. Uh, you know the the Pocket Testament League. Take you know one, two, a few of those. Go online. All the information's inside. Get your own copies and be prepared. Open your mouth. Share your faith with people. Um, you know some of our workplaces say you can't share. With people, that's totally false. It's not true. I'll just give you some some insight and and be prepared to fight. Be prepared to fight. Okay. <clears throat> if people talk about, I mean, you you have the freedom in in Christ, right? Our 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 lands laws are different, but you have the freedom in Christ to share with anyone you want to. The gospel is unrestricted. Open your mouth, speak for the Lord. But if if you're working within those parameters, they say anything that pertains to your faith. You are then free to speak to them about your faith, right? If your employer says, oh, that's it, we're going to have to fire you, you talk to people about your faith, you, under all of the laws of this nation and the state, can say, you can't fire me. If you think that I've violated workplace protocol, then you have to give me written warning. I have to have an official meeting with you. You have to write me up and put it in my file. And then I have to violate that again before you write me up again for the same thing. They can't just go, oh, you shared your faith, you're fired. It does not work. Not in any setting. I don't care if you're a public school teacher. I don't care if you work in the government. There is no setting where that works. You're allowed to share your faith with people. Our enemy wants us to keep our mouths shut. You know, open your mouth. Share the gospel with people. Give them, you know, that gospel of John, the word of God. The harvest is ready now. Laborers are few. Our enemy is constantly driving people out of the labor force that would perform the harvest. Don't, don't, don't be part of the waiting. Don't let... Uh, you know, the grape spoil on the vine. Get in where you can. Uh, I already referenced Second Peter 3, 9 about the Lord wanting everyone to come to repentance. So um, the following, you know, as we read this, as I've talked about already, it's not an evangelistic uh, harvest that uh, this angel is performing. This is death that we're talking about. Beginning verse 19, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth 
and gathered the vine of the earth, right? I mean, if you're a vineyard owner, if you're a vine dresser and you hire somebody and he heads out into the field and he comes back with a wagon full of the vine, like, you're fired, man. I mean, you just ruined what you know everything we're doing. You're supposed to get grapes. So do you understand how the Lord is saying enough of the whole thing? We're going to cut it all off. In this, as far as humanity and death goes, it's the idea of whole genealogies being wiped out. You know, races of people being brought to an end. Whole civilizations being destroyed in the process. It's as severe a picture as you can imagine the Lord delivering here. So the angel thrusting in the sickle, gathered the vine of the earth, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. This is so interesting. This develops into the mindset of what's going to become the Valley of Armageddon. But currently what's being described is the Kidron Valley. That that, that term, uh, Jesus left the... Last Supper and went down through the Valley of Kidron, crossed the stream of Kidron, went up into the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, it is recorded in history that many times, because of the abundance of sacrifices that were taking place at the temple and the fact that they wash the sacrificial altar over and over again, clearing the blood away, that runs down through the streets, ends up in the Kidron Valley. The Kidron stream would run bright red with the blood of all the lambs. It is possible that that had already begun, and as Jesus crosses the Kidron, it's running red with the blood of the lambs, that he is the fulfillment of those things. That blood would spoil and turn black, and so that is why it's called Kidron, because the term means black. So the Black Valley. So here, they're, they're outside the city. This uh, statement here, they gathered uh, this uh, uh, vine and they trample it outside the city. Many things uh, come into play, you know, and the blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for 100, uh, for 1,600 furlongs. That's basically 200 miles is what you're looking at. Now, a whole bunch of the modern scholars look back at this and they start trying to do calculations about, okay, so how many quarts of blood do, does a human being have? And, okay, that's not enough. So maybe, well, if it's horses and humans, because this is a great battle, maybe it's all that blood and, you know, four to five feet up to the bridle of the horses, you know, how is that going to play out? And they're trying to calculate this whole thing. Okay. <clears throat> Those that study ancient warfare come back and say it might not be that picture. That's, that's a common expression of ancient warfare. That the melee of the battle is so bad that the horses end up covered in blood all the way up to their bridle, right? They're just thrashing through the death that's happening around them, 
war horses are trained. It's weird to say it this way. They're trained to enjoy battle. They 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 are thrill seekers. They 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 get into it. As strange as it is, they hear the battle and they get all wound up about wanting to go get involved in it. They're part of the battle. They trample and stamp and crush and it's part of their training in 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 uh, in warfare and how these animals are used. I don't know if you've ever seen horses, police horses used in riots. Look for footage online. It's remarkable. They are so self-controlled. You know, a thing that would normally make a horse spook, they move toward it. They're not frightened by flash. They're not frightened by clatter, gunshots, any of it. It's like their environment. They're very much into the whole process. Point I'm making with all of this rambling is that they're trained to lunge and keep their head above the fray. So their head being above all of the carnage causes it to be that they would be covered in blood from their bridle down. The top of their head is always above. They're always looking above for where they're going and what their next target is. So, you know, commonly horses would emerge from the battle and their knights and their soldiers and their riders would say, oh, the fight, the melee, the horses were covered in blood to their bridles. You know, there were times where it wasn't that bad. Uh, But when it was so bad that the bloodshed was everywhere, you know, it'd be quite a sight to see a troop of horses coming out of battle and they're all covered in blood up to their bridles. So, you know, for the guys that, you know, want to find ways to make the blood four to five feet deep, okay, I'll let them have that. The point is there is going to be just a mob, mosh, melee warfare, bloodshed, mangling for a battlefield that's you know more than 200 miles long. So where's that? Uh, from here, it's it's somewhere in New Hampshire. Okay, <laughs> a battlefield that the melee is that bad. That's that's essentially what I see in this. You know, next time you you leave here to drive, uh, you know, when you cross the bridge in Kittery, think about. Wow, like, you know, even if it was just the I-95 corridor, that entire run all the way down there being, you know, just seeing nothing but bloodshed and warfare and carnage for the entire ride, that would be intimidating to say the least. So however you want to wrestle with that, either way, to me, it's a horrifying scene to think about that much death and that much insanity. Many things within this jump out. The the wine press, the wrath, the warfare, Jesus coming with the armies. Think about Jude, uh, all of the horses and the saints following him into battle. This is as he's setting up his kingdom. Revelation 19, 19 says, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Sounds absurd, doesn't it? God's on the way. Oh, let's go attack him. Um, Clearly, you're fit for the loony bin. 
at, at that point, okay? Now consider the nonsense that's going on in our culture. Um, I, I know this is a Will Cass imagination stretch, so bear with me. But uh, UFOs and aliens, um, the, the, the two common opinions that are presented through media, books, uh, television, movies, is that they are our saviors. They're of superior intelligence and they're coming here to enlighten us, to give us wisdom and science and vision and understanding. Or they are an invading army that wants to do two things. And it's so interesting because they always want to steal great numbers of the human race and kill the rest of us. It's, it's weird, right? These are the common presentations. They are our brilliant saviors from either another planet or another realm, or they are body snatchers who want to kill everyone else. Okay, now think about this. Our Lord fits the description of the body snatcher who is going to kill everyone else. He's going to come and he's going to take his church off from the earth in the twinkling of an eye, in a split-second instant Millions of people will disappear. There will be years that transpire before he returns to set up his kingdom. So if the Antichrist has deceived the people, however he does it, if this fits into the narrative to say that one who came previously and stole all of your loved ones is on his way back and he's going to try to kill us all. So let's go to war against him. It, it it fits into the narrative. You know, is that how he's going to deceive them? Is that why they're going to go try to go to war? I, I don't know. Maybe. I think it's going to be something like that. I think it's going to be a delusion. I think it's going to be a, a deception of the people. Why else? Who in their right mind would say, oh, God's on his way to set up his throne and establish his kingdom? And you want me to join ranks against him and we'll go fight? Okay, I'm in. Uh, who would be that stupid? I think that there has to be, a, a, I would say, a high level of deception. And consider everything we've read and heard through the book of Revelation of how the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet are going to lead the people through the process of deception, even being able to, to commit lying signs and wonders even able to call fire down from heaven, as we talked about last week. So, you know, anyway, uh, they, they're going to go to war against the God of creation. Isaiah 63, I'm going to give you a number of passages, at least a few, a number, you know, the rest of the night, uh, uh, several passages where we see God doing war against humanity. Uh, this And the wine press is very often incorporated into it either directly or implied or indirectly. So Isaiah 63, 1, who is this who comes from Edom? Which is interesting because uh, the scripture tells us that uh, his appearing will be as lightning from the east to the west. So from Israel, from Jerusalem, looking eastward, Edom. So who is this that comes from Edom, the east, with dyed garments from Basra? Now, this one who is glorious in his apparel. 
traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? Here, there, uh, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger. The peoples he just mentioned, he just told us, I have trodden them. <laughs> so the, the vine, the nations, the peoples, here, uh, he is, he is uh, referring to, no one was with me. Uh, I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And I looked, and there was no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drink, excuse me, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. They'd have to be drunk to say, yeah, let's go to war against God. They are intoxicated uh, with uh, their arrogance, with, you know, intoxicating uh, elements, as the book of Revelation repeatedly says to us. Continuing that same thought, Joel, a couple references, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, God's judgment or God's um, uh, vengeance is what's being thought of there in the, in the term Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They also divide, uh, divided up my land. A little later in verse 9 of Joel 3, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. Right? We commonly hear, and we'll talk about, you know, beating the swords into plowshares. Here, God challenges the people of the world. Basically, says you're gonna want to stop. Uh, all of your farming and get ready for warfare because I'm coming prepared for war. So you're either going to submit to me wholeheartedly and my lordship, or you're going to need to be prepared to do battle against me. So bleach, uh, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there into the valley. O oh Lord, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And here it is. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats over flow for their wickedness is great multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the lord is near in the valley of decision so all of the same things it's interesting to me 
that for all of the differences in the prophets, there are a few things that are always common. His lordship, his conquest, his battle with humanity, almost all of the prophets give great detail and explanation to those things. Zechariah chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So we will see this played out more in chapter 16 and 19 as we move along. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 gives us a reference of when Christ comes to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And it says, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, half of it towards the south. Uh, we see many different references to the arrival of Jesus Christ and his setting up his kingdom. And there are <clears throat> massive changes to the geography of planet Earth. Islands sink, mountains rise, great catastrophes occur. Uh, you know, later we have that reference of the stream that comes out from underneath the uh, temple, the Lord's throne, and travels all the way to the Dead Sea and gives life back to the Dead Sea great fruitfulness in all of the land. So, so really dramatic geographic changes occur when Jesus Christ comes and does battle and war with the nations of the world and establishes his kingdom on the earth. One that I've always been intrigued with, if, if you're a note taker, uh, there's a great website. It used to just be a, um, a magazine publication, but now... Uh, biblicalarchaeology.org. So if you can remember that, it's pretty simple. Biblicalarchaeology.org uh, talks about the eastern gate that uh, he's going to enter through when coming into Jerusalem. And uh, because the scriptures talk about you know the, the splitting of the Mount of Olives and his entrance to the eastern gate, the Muslims actually bricked the whole gate up it's it's a solid wall now and they, and then they uh, uh, put a huge uh, cemetery right in front of it to defile it with with dead bodies so that it one it's sacred ground and, and then two it's also defiled so you know it was, it's sort of the attitude like so the Messiah your your Messiah can't come through here is sort of their their attitude especially toward uh, Christianity. So biblicalarchaeology.org uh, published a story uh, in the January-February uh, 1982 edition of the magazine where Dr. Jim Fleming discovered an archway of a gate below the present-day eastern gate of the old city. Okay, uh, So on his account, he was doing work at the site and fell through 
the rain-soaked ground. In 1969, this took place. So through, he fell through the graveyard, right, and landed well below all of that. And there, uh, eight feet he measured below the existing gate that is there was the top of the original eastern gate. Interesting, because it talks about how when Christ arrives, all of Jerusalem will be physically elevated, li physically lifted up. So some have actually wondered and speculated if, if the Lord himself is not going to literally elevate the ancient city up through the present-day city and, and bring it to its position. With that, all of the men who have studied this point out that Psalm 24, beginning at verse 7, says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Now, this psalm was so profound to the Jews that they would sing this annually at Passover which was April 6, 32 AD, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. The priests are standing on the wall and they're singing as a shout to, to another group of priests on the ground. And this is how it went. As Jesus was coming through the gates and being welcomed as the Messiah, Psalm 24 they would say from the ground, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. From the wall, they would shout down, who is this King of glory? The answer from the ground, the Lord, strong and mighty. So interesting, because it's the name of God, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Jehovah, Right, so, so the Lord, strong and mighty, Jesus is entering right then. They don't even recognize God is riding a colt of a donkey through the gate here in the moment. So historically, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. The response again, who is this King of glory? The answer, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And it's, it's so poignant to me. Psalm 24, uh, verse 10, ends with that one word, Selah. Right? When you read that in the Psalms, if you get the opportunity to set the book down and just be quiet and think about what you just read, because that's exactly what that word means. It means pause right here, very dramatically, very deliberately, for reflection. Think about that. They're saying that with their mouths as Jesus is riding through this gate, coming into Jerusalem, right? Fulfilling Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, that said, from the order to restore and rebuild the temple to the coming of Messiah, the prince would be 173,880 days. March 14th, 445 B.C., the order is given. 173,880 days later, April 6, 32 A.D., Jesus is riding through the gates. And they're singing this to themselves, 
not realizing there's your Messiah. When I read this and I couple it together with what we see in the book of Revelation, my suspicion is that gate's going to rise right up out of the ground. Lift up your head, O you gates, for the everlasting king. What, what did he say there in the moment as the children are shouting, Hosanna, save now, is what that means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of David, right? So, so the priests say, make them stop. They're singing about the Messiah and the gate, but now that they're referencing Jesus as the Messiah, make them stop. Jesus says, hey, I'm paraphrasing. If I made them stop, the rocks would cry out. I wonder if the gate would not have somehow praised the Lord in the moment. Interesting concept. Do, do, you, do you catch my excitement? Do you see what I'm saying about we're trapped here in these temporal things? And if we can look behind and see what is there. And, and, and brothers and sisters, this is just around the corner. All of this is so close to us. So close to fulfillment. So Revelation 6, verse 14, Then the skies receded the scroll as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So that you know, idea, again, of uh, all of nature being changed. Jesus conquering the armies of the world and setting up his throne on earth, of course, you know, once he's done that, they reverse the process. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. One quarter of the world's scientists are employed in warfare. don't know if you're aware of that. The leading economic industry in the world, number one, this is so sad, number one is war. Number two is illicit drugs. How about that? War and pharmacia, war and drugs are what we as a people invest in more than any other thing. You know, economic disaster would have already come to all of South America and North America. And this is so condemning if it had not been for the drug trade, you guys. Cocaine in particular has, has paid whole nations national debts over and over and over again. It's what a tragedy. Won't it be a magnificent thing to see all of those resources pooled into caring for the health and well-being of nations. What, what a wonderful time that will be. Boy, 728. I thought I was going into chapter 15. Well, we'll have to reserve it. Um, there's just no, no way I can get through what's recorded uh, in uh, the... It's, it's short, eight verses, but it's the finality of uh, the bowls of wrath being poured out, and there's just a lot to examine there. So... Two weeks in a row, I've promised you chapter eight, uh, uh, chapter fifteen. So we'll we'll have to put that in reserve one more time for for next week. So let's pray, and we'll pick up with chapter fifteen next week. Father, I thank you, I thank you for the great promise, Lord, of your Scripture and your soon and imminent return. Help us to be men and women that long for it, that look forward to it. 
Lord, we see little glimpses in this world of, you know, like how fruitful this world can be if, if we just manage things a little differently. And yet the corruption of humanity keeps us from doing that. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would come soon. As John said, Maranatha. We ask that you would accomplish these things. You would finish these things. That you would alleviate the pain and take away the decay. That the, the withering of the harvest would come to completion and, and that you would appear and deliver us all from the pain of this fallen planet. Lord, until then, please uh, light a fire within us to bring people into your kingdom, to share with people the message of salvation, to invite our friends, family, and neighbors to know you. Give us the words. Give us the strength. Fill us with your spirit that we could be your witnesses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.